1: Greetings, geeks, and welcome to another edition of Wizard's Half. This is mini episode 64.5. These are the episodes where we get into all the nitty-gritty details we didn't have time for in the main episode. And I'm excited to be with you here. It just feels like there was a lot of new stuff in this issue, the kinds of features that Wizard was experimenting with, and, and all, all our old favorites as well. But I hope you enjoyed our conversation on episode 64 with Andrew from the Life Was Peachy podcast. It just seemed to flow so naturally, didn't it? There was a lot of great topics in that issue. And of course, like I say, here there is even more to explore. Speaking of which, if you are not exploring our YouTube channel, you are missing out. There is plenty of original content there. Everything there, it doesn't necessarily come over to the podcast feed and vice versa. And in fact, once you hear this recording, we have already released the Halloween costume contest for 1996. You can listen to Michael and I give our commentary about all the awesome cosplay that was going on and being submitted to the magazine it was a lot of fun to do that one more year of course we also have coming up our replay if you will of the fantasy superhero draft event which was a lot of fun want to thank everybody who made the time to join us and hopefully those who missed out you could be there next year because it was a ton of fun we really really enjoyed the conversation seeing who picked who and who stole whose hero for their team so stay tuned for that as well but hey some Somebody walked away with a big prize pack there and let's talk about some giveaways that wizard was getting up to with cap's kooky contests now the first contest here as you'll recall we were talking about the 10th anniversary of the dark knight returns and so dc comics presents the second time around contest they say it's better the second time In the case of Batman The Dark Knight Returns, they just might be right. It's the 10th anniversary of Dark Knight Returns, and if you could do what Dark Knight Returns writer-artist Frank Miller did the first time around, you could walk off with one heck of a pointy-eared prize package. How to play. We want you to try to one-up Frank Miller. See, it's an easy contest. By doing what he did. Send in a drawing of a Dark Knight-ized DC Universe hero, except Batman. Age them about 30 years and change them for future times. Send in your drawing in any medium you wish and make it good. Winners will be chosen based on quality and creativity and will win some outstanding prizes. Which, I loved the concept of this. I mean, just to, again, see kind of the Elseworlds take on a future hero. Now, it says here, Grand prize, one reader will receive the complete Dark Knight Returns 10th Anniversary DC Retail Products Package. That includes two posters, a t-shirt, a Dark Knight Returns hardcover, a slipcase hardcover set limited to 10,000 pieces, and the Dark Knight Returns 10th Anniversary resin statue, with a suggested retail value of $195. And that resin statue is displayed on the contest page here. You have a very large Batman and a teeny tiny Carrie Kelly, who I don't even know if this is possible. Like, she looks like Hobbit-sized next to him, but she's got the slingshot going. He seems to be helping her line up her shot, but it feels like Carrie would know how to use a slingshot. It's pretty self-explanatory. Anyway, second prize, 20 readers will each receive a Dark Knight Returns 10th anniversary t-shirt and a Dark Knight Returns retail poster. This contest is sponsored by DC Comics, and they know it's better the second time. Alright, now here we have our Dark Legal Knight, says here. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, DC Comics, their immediate families, or the six jillion people who have ripped off Dark Knight Returns number one's lightning cover. Enough already, and it continues to this day. Next one here. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Maybe it's us, but them little batarangs Batman was tossing around in DKR looked a lot more painful than the big ones. Yes, Batman has big ones. <laughs> they couldn't resist. What, D's nuts hanging from the Batmobile? All right, moving on. Also in this issue was a Darkness half-comic offer. So, of course, we have Top Cow Presents the Darkness Limerick Contest. The Darkness is coming. Top Cow Comics, sure to be a hit, launches this November with the tale of an ancient evil evil power, which is used for good for the first time in the hands of Jackie, an immortal hitman searching for his perfect mate. But why should the darkness have to be so dark? Maybe you could lighten it up a bit and walk away with some delightfully dark prizes for your effort. How to play. Darkness creators Mark Silvestri and Garth Ennis want you to lighten up the darkness a bit. And seeing as how Ennis is an Irishman who appreciates a good limerick, he'd like to see you submit an original limerick, a light or humorous poem of five lines, according to Merriam-Webster, about the darkness. Here's an example. For example, there once was a power most dark, thought up by a man named Mark. When scripted by Ennis, a writer quite the menace, you know the book is a lark. Okay, lousy example, but you get the idea. They always put down their limerick and poem examples, but I think they are pretty good at what they're doing over there at Wizard. Now, delightfully dark prizes, grand prize, one reader whose limerick is judged best will receive an original Garth Ennis script to The Darkness. And just because co-creator Mark Silvestri doesn't want to be left out, he'll even do a little darkness sketch on the first page. Ten readers whose poetic abilities are still plenty keen will each receive copies of The Darkness No. 1 and The Darkness Preview autographed by Garth Ennis and Mark Sylvester. This contest is sponsored by Top Cow Comics, defenders of all high-altitude bovine collectibles. Well, at least they didn't pull out another dairy-based joke. Contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Top Cow Comics, and their immediate families, or anyone who starts their lyric with the line, there once was a man from Nantucket. Now, I want to know, because that's such a classic cliche, but what was the original old-school rhyme to that? I gotta know. Alright, next. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law... In a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof, screw with this contest and Garth Ennis will come over and flash your house pet. <laughs> oh yes, a deed most foul. And on to the last contest here. Fleer Skybox International presents the Boris or Julie contest. Not only are Julie Bell and Boris Vallejo two of the best fantasy artists around, but they're also married to each other. So naturally, we here at Wizard feel obligated to stir things up a little and make them compete against each other. You see, the new Fleer Skybox Marvel Masterpieces card set features a hundred new paintings from master artists Julie Bell and Boris Vallejo. And all you have to do to win one of these highly sought after paintings is drive a wedge between a happily married couple. Ha, <laughs> ha. I get to be a homewrecker? That's right. Pictured here are three Julie Bell paintings from Marvel Masterpieces and three Boris works from the same set. Which artist do you like better, Julie or Boris? Tell us and you could win. A random drawing among all you instigators of divorce proceedings will determine winners of our grand prize. One lucky winner will get the Boris Vallejo original of our old pal Wolverine shown here. Even if you don't get that loot, you could still get one of our second prizes. Fifteen other winners will each get a box of Fleer Sky Marvel masterpieces, which, as it just so happens, might contain winning tickets which fans can redeem for original Julia Boris Heart of their own. Keen, eh? So, a couple things here. The first thing is this Wolverine image that is the Boris Vallejo drawing. What I find fascinating about it is, number one, Wolverine has the bone claws, because this was the bone claws era, but also, his eyes are white. Like, you know, usually he has the mask on and his eyes are white, but he has no cowl, it's just his face and his hair, and it's just completely white, which which is pretty creepy, I always preferred to think it was part of the mask. Now, as far as who is my favorite artist of all of these, Boris, uh, he does great work, and his guys are very shiny, and so are Julie's, but I don't know, Julie has this awesome Spider-Man, even though he is way too buff, I just love the look of it all, so I would have to, you know, give it to Julie in this particular instance. But now let's check out the prenuptial legal agreement. The contest is open to anyone except employees of Wizard Press, Flare Skybox International, and their immediate family. Or Michelle Triola Marvin. Who is she? Beats us. Jim McLaughlin writes these things. We're just copy editors. <laughs> That was a little strange. I'm like, must be a friend or an enemy. All right. Offer void where prohibited, regulated, or restricted by law in a manner inconsistent with the purposes and rules hereof. Oh, by the way, we're forwarding all your votes to Boris and Julie, who, as you know, work out and are super buff. Expect a visit from whoever you didn't vote for where you'll find how uncomfortable a three by five inch card jammed in your ass can be. (laughs) Wow. All right. Now, last thing here, uh, as far as contests go, so we don't have any official contests left, but there is the contest results. And most of them are just like, okay, this person won. Good for them. But there was a a contest a while back that was for readers to submit what they thought the next Randy Bowen statue should be. And Craig White of San Francisco, California won, suggesting he create a, quote, true Spider-Man statue, which to me is so lame and so plain two wizards penchant for picking on the spider clone you know that they hate it so much they just wanted the real spider-man back so you submit that i mean it it seems unfair to me i would have much preferred a unique selection rather than just be like why don't you do that one let's move on to the next segment here Well, here we go with a feature we usually have on the main episodes, but this time around, a Wizard was mixing it up with their casting call. They said, This month's casting call is a bit of a departure. Instead of choosing actors to play comic characters in a movie, we're recasting the original Star Trek crew. With modern versions of TV shows like The Brady Bunch and The Addams Family being done, why not do it with Trek? Just think, with some help from ILM, the original Enterprise, looking better than ever, would be back in space with an updated version of the original cast sounds like a surefire hit to us but who could fill the shoes of the original cast well glad you asked so star trek right we're usually dealing with comic books michael knows comic books i don't know that he would have had a strong opinion on the star trek crew so i had to reach out across the galaxy to someone who i was sure would have many opinions about wizards ideas here once again joining us from the trekology podcast it is jeff how you doing hello hello, jeff you and I. I also uh, had some experience with casting movies fan casting because we used to do a podcast called sequel quest yeah and we want to pitch our own movies and sequels to popular franchises and then cast them so it's kind of a return to form i'm excited here
0: it's true it felt like at different points we stressed that more or less on sequel quest but mm-hmm. you know that was always a fun part of making up our dream uh, our dream sequels
1: Yeah, now this first one here is like ideal to get your opinion on because for Captain James T. Kirk, they want Tron himself, Bruce Boxleitner, which you are a super fan of Trek and Tron. So how did you feel about this casting choice?
0: Well, as I was looking through really this whole spread, I feel like they went for look over personality over character. Mm -hmm. Uh, It is kind of funny, like with Bruce, he did play the captain on Babylon 5. So there was a little bit of the crossover and the picture they got of him really looks like a young Bill Shatner. But personally, he was a very different captain on Babylon 5 than Captain Kirk was. So personally, he wouldn't have been my first choice.
1: Yeah. Now let me tell you who my alternate casting for this would have been at the time. I feel like 1996 Tom Cruise has the intensity, has Uh. the attitude like the swagger. I feel like he could have played a great Kirk. What's your thought on that?
0: See, especially in the 90s, I felt like Tom Cruise was skewing very young. He had a lot of young kind of frenetic energy and for me I didn't feel like that was Captain Kirk like uh, not only that but like I don't think he would command his crew the way that William Shatner did where where he was kind of like the, the, the crew's dad. And especially at this time, Tom Tom Cruise was very careful never to play a dad role. So (laughs) I I see the energy, I see the, the enthusiasm and the charisma, but yeah, again, the persona... I'm not sure I'm as I as on board.
1: Well, and I'll tell you, so when I was going through this and thinking up other ideas, like I was really saying, well, it's the 90s. So you want people with the 90s attitude. We're not trying to create mm. the 60s vibe. So when you hear what I have to say about some of these casting choices, then uh, keep that in mind. But the next one here for Lieutenant Sulu, they wanted Jason Scott Lee from Dragon, the Bruce Lee story. Uh, so what do you think about that? Jason Scott Lee as Sulu.
0: I mean, I loved him in uh the Bruce Lee story. I kind of felt like they're like, do we know any Asian actors? Uh yeah. we know one. And so that was kind of a shame. Most of the Asian actors, especially back in those days, were more kind of uh character actors. So, like, I saw like uh from Robocop 2. He, I think, would be a much better, especially back in the 90s. I think he'd be a much better Sulu, because again. Jason Scott Lee would be wasted all of his, you know, physicality and all of that when really what they wanted was a moderate science guy. And I don't know that that was him
1: as much. Except for the one scene where he's fencing shirtless that they would have to insert in there, you right. know? Right, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> now, the next one here, I'm very curious to get your take, is for Ensign Pavel Chekhov. They wanted Matt Broderick because, you know, he's got the baby face and Chekhov was, you know, the young member of the crew with all the enthusiasm. So what do you think about Matthew Broderick putting on a Russian accent to play Chekhov?
0: I mean, he could do it. Uh, it would be silly and he would be, you know, it would be like a intended for comedy purposes. Yes. Whereas I don't think Chekhov's, Chekhov's accent was never supposed to be funny his personality sometimes he was a little he was the young you know aloof ensign but he was like it, we were never supposed to laugh at how ridiculous his accent was uh not that it was necessarily believable but in the context of the show it was I don't think that Broderick could pull that off without sounding like uh, you know Boris and Natasha from Rocky and Bullwinkle
1: <laughs> well and at the same time like I said thinking of the 90s energy I think 100% what you said he would have to be part of the comic relief of the crew so right. in my mind at this time I was like johnny depp you know he wanted to play the weird characters he would have have weirded it up or giovanni rabisi who is just a weird character
0: (laughs) okay i would say giovanni rabisi dropped the accent yeah uh because i don't i don't know that he could do it at all but i think that would be that's not a bad choice where it's just kind of a little bit of an oddball but moderately forgettable like i feel like that's how he played his roles like your favorite his uh his role in the postman was very forgettable by everyone but you
1: that's correct it's good it's good (laughs) (laughs) all right now the next one here though jeff i have to say i feel like wizard is right on target because for Dr. Leonard Bones McCoy, they want Gary Sinise. Yes, Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump and many other great roles. How do you feel about that? Because he just feels like the living embodiment of DeForest Kelly in the mm. 90s. I mean, a
0: bit he's got a little bit of the gruff he he kind of the same thing bones not that bones was uh, or not that the forest kelly was that much older but he had a little bit of an older energy mm-hmm. so personally like even though i don't mind this casting as much as some of the other ones i think i would shift even older like i was thinking of like philip baker if you remember the uh the librarian from Seinfeld or the library (laughs) detective. I could see him bringing some of that older doctor energy. But if it was Gary Sinise, like, I I think I'd be okay with
1: that. What are you trying to get away with there, Spock? You green blooded alien. What do you think you're doing, huh? Oh, exactly. (laughs) Tough guy. Yeah, that'd be interesting. (laughs) Speaking of Spock, though, this is maybe a controversial pick. I don't know. For Spock, they want Billy Zane because they want someone who has a superior air about him. (laughs) How do you feel about Billy Zane putting on the ears?
0: See, for me, this was the one that I'm like, yep. That one works. Like, I think Billy Zane is a very underrated actor who I think could pull this off and yet pull it off subtly. I don't think he'd have to, like, eat up the scenery and be, like, overly... Like, for me personally, with these new J.J. Abrams movies, I feel like Zachary Quinto is going too far. I feel like he is overly stiff and so he actually steals a lot of the scenery away whereas i always felt like leonard nimoy was a little more subtle in his portrayal and i feel like billy zane would be able to pull that off
1: i i see it though i had a pick which nowadays is not gonna fly but back then i think kevin spacey as spock he's he's already played k Pax. he played an alien sort of <laughs> but, but you know what i'm saying like he has that like deadpan look to him just always like serious business but there's always something going on behind the eyes mm. and he, you know we think of him now as a villain in life and on screen mainly yeah. but i think at the time like as that young you know well youngish uh, <laughs> younger lesser known actor at that point. I feel like he could have pulled it off. Or if you wanted to go even younger, more Billy Zane era, John Cusack as Spock. What do you think?
0: Mm. See, again, with the Cusack and even Kevin Spacey, especially John Cusack, he doesn't do subtle, really. Like that's, he does, but his thing is subtle, is that it's it's his like self-deprecating, like whatever. Uh-huh. I, I feel like that would be a little bit of a challenge. The reality is Spock ended up stealing the show anyway, where people were talking about Spock for decades afterwards and people's favorite character, but I don't think it's because of uh, Leonard Nimoy playing that role big. I think it was because of his subtlety, so that would be my only dig, because I know obviously John Cusack was king of the 80s and 90s, so to throw him in somewhere makes a lot of sense, but here... Ah, uh, I don't know. I, I feel like that shifts the
1: dynamic Let a Billy bit. Zane have it. Okay. Now, next one here for uh, Lieutenant Commander Montgomery Scott. Oh, Scotty. We love him so much. They want a guy I've never heard of. named Mike McGlone from The Brothers McMullen. Also mm. never heard of that film. And they, they didn't even say he's done a Scottish accent. They're like, if he could do a Scottish accent. Oh, <laughs> I think, he, again, you said looks like in this picture, like the hair, everything right. looks like the classic Scotty, but i had a thought here again to maybe go a little bit older mix up the age of the cast have a character that has a little more seasoning to them that like the number one scottish actor of television at this time billy Connolly.
0: okay i thought you were gonna go sean connery i'm like whoa whoa (laughs) no 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 okay billy Connolly. okay
1: because he would totally be the comic relief he's a comedian and he he would would just have so much energy like honestly He feels like what we got in the Abrams movie that I feel like that's what Billy Connolly would have brought in the 90s. It's true.
0: It's true. Now, the tough part is, again, if you are like doing a straight reboot of the show, Scotty was not the comic relief. Right. So that would shift it a little bit. I mean, he can do, Billy Connolly can do serious. Uh, I mean, obviously it's an easy one with the accent. He wouldn't have to fake it or anything like that. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting one. Maybe, maybe attempt to play it a little straighter than his normal kind of goofballness.
1: Yeah, and for those who don't remember Billy Connolly, he was the second teacher on head of the class, <laughs> and he yeah. was he also had his own short-lived sitcom in the '90s. There you go. He so. was
0: the voice of the dad in Brave, but that came years later.
1: Yes. Now for Uhura, this was an interesting choice because yeah, you want somebody who's like likable instantly and they chose Holly Robinson from 21 Jump Street hanging with Mr. Cooper and I know her as one of the band members in Howard the Duck.
0: See, this is another tough one where it's just kind of like, okay, so like strong black actresses from the 90s. Kind of a short list. Like they, they didn't have many roles. So like Holly Robinson, yeah, that one. I mean, my, my first thing of what I was watching in the 90s would be like Lark Vouris from uh, Saved by the Bell. But She um, actually
1: would not have been bad now yeah, that I think about well,
0: it. Because the sad thing, and we've talked about this on our podcast, the sad thing about Uhura is that she didn't have a lot of role like she didn't have many lines it was usually a very generic like hailing frequencies open captain and that's about all michelle nichols did a great job of kind of portraying this inner strength so to be honest i'm not all that familiar with 21 jump street so i don't know if she, holly kind of showed some of that subtext uh but outside of that yeah having somebody that wasn't there just for eye candy but you know could still represent a strong woman in this crew
1: then yeah well and on that track Jeff the reason I went with my casting choice was exactly that play a little bit against type but feed into the 90s kind of blasé been there disenchanted attitude Lisa Bonet from the Cosby show Mm -hmm. as Uhura I think would have been fascinating to see her take on that okay now how about for Khan because you gotta have a villain in this film they want Armand Asante who most recently and played the villain in Judge Dredd. What do you think? Is he the successor to Ricardo Montalban?
0: Oh, absolutely. Oh, I, you could have Armand Santé do anything. And I'd be like, <laughs> yep, yep. Because I, I think... He's got that slightly, like, not quite American accent, which works really, really well. So that, that it's, it's, it's a little foreign, but not distantly so. He's definitely got that, like, superior air about him and that strength that he portrays. The one challenge that I think if you're going to really do a Wrath of Khan rething, which I thought this was going to be more the TV show, but you really got to partner these two up. They've got to be uh, a Khan that really reflects well off of your Kirk. So, if we go back to like talking about Bruce Boxletter, I don't think he could stand up to a Martinezante. I think a no. Martinezante would crush him. And so it's like, well, <laughs> all right, you got to get a little bit of a balance there.
1: See that that's where Tom Cruise could go toe to toe with the Oh no, tank. no. it
0: would be like this <laughs> little kid coming up, "Hey, Mr. Khan, get out of here. <laughs> you can't handle the truth." Be like Settle down, Junior.
1: So, this was my pick. If again, you were gonna cast a little bit against type, but go for just a unique, quirky performance, I actually had two choices, two ideas in mind. The first was because he was a young, up and coming actor, Russell Crowe as con, huh?
0: In the 90s. In the 90s, it was like virtuosity,
1: exactly. That was
0: that was where I was coming from, or. Uh.
1: If you just want to go over the top, like, never-to-be-forgotten performance, Uh-oh. Nicolas Cage as con.
0: Oh, well, you can get Nicolas Cage to do anything. You just don't know <laughs> what you're going to get. Just throw it, throw anything to, to Nick Cage. See, now, my problem with Russell Crowe, I feel like you would end up with something very similar to what the J.J. Abrams movie got by going a little bit more, like, psychopathic with Benedict okay. Cumberbatch. So that frenetic energy, like Khan is always cool, collected, and superior. Russell Crowe could maybe pull it off later than that, but nineties Russell Crowe, I don't know. Uh even thinking about like him in LA Confidential, where he's like, he's crazy and yeah. he'll snap at any minute. And that Khan is 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 much more in control than that. Okay. Now throwing Nick Cage, again, could he do it? Of course. Would he do it? I don't know. Like you yeah, again, <laughs> You're, you're, you're turning the reins over to him. Now balancing him and Bruce Fox or something. We can kind of get into that. I I can see that.
1: Yeah. Now for the last two picks here for casting, they're just looking to fill out the female members of the crew. And so I was hoping you could give us some insight into the characteristics of these characters as they originally appeared. Because for Yeoman Rand, they want to have Cameron Diaz from the mask hundred percent they just state because she could fill out a trek uniform. Yeah, Come on, Wizard. So
0: gross. Well, and even the what is it? The beautiful and sexy Yeoman Rand. Mmm, that's so creepy. <laughs> so the sad thing is for both Yeoman Rand and, and Nurse Chapel, like you said, they're they're bit players. They're characters to be fair, like Yeoman Rand was introduced in the first season as being like a we need to give captain kirk some sort of a like romantic will they won't they and it didn't work and so they cut her and she was not even in the later episodes and so she was
1: roddenberry's wife right
0: no that was uh that was uh, the gal that played nurse chapel oh okay. um and that same sort of a thing is that she was originally cast to be the second in command and the studio didn't like that. So then they they switched it, but they still gave her kind of a role as the the nurse. Although again, she's only in a handful of episodes. She has a crush on Mr. Spock and so all of that.
1: Yeah, Um, so for for Nurse Chapel, they wanted Meg Ryan, which I would say yes, 90s Meg Ryan in anything.
0: Yeah, well, except for Nurse Chapel, I always thought had somewhat of an older um, uh, persona. Uh, Again, she had a crush on Mr. Spock, so she wasn't actually that much older, but I feel like as a nurse and stuff like that. Now, in the new show, Strange New Worlds, her character is in that as a much younger kind of like go-getter sort of thing. And so if you go that route, then I, I would agree Meg Ryan. But I think Nurse Chapel, yeah, you would want to picture somebody a little bit on the matronly side. And I don't think that was especially not 90s Meg Ryan. But Yeoman Rand, really anybody from Baywatch would have been fine That's too. what I was going
1: to say. I'm sure they would see, oh, a red short skirt. Okay, we'll just get someone from Baywatch. They exactly. wear red all the exactly. time. Exactly.
0: <laughs> but not not like Pam Anderson, she'd be too big, but one of the others, you know, yeah. maybe from Baywatch Nights. Bring
1: out one of them. Gina Lee Nolan, I think (laughs) that's one of them. Oh, all right, so that is the caster, but there is one important cast member that they left off, I feel, Jeff, and that is, who are we gonna get to play a Tribble? And there was one actor who was struggling in Hollywood in the 90s, didn't have any movies going on, and that is the one and only Gizmo from Gremlins. So let's get Gizmo (laughs) in there to play a Tribble with a heart of gold. (laughs)
0: With a heart of gold, yes.
1: (laughs) <laughs> all right well jeff thank you so much for joining me for this discussion it was wild uh, to see where they were going and find out where our takes were uh, but jeff where can people find you talking more trek well me and my buddy greg we have our podcast trekology
0: that is available every other friday so come and join us wherever your podcasts are found
1: awesome thanks so much Quick here, I just wanted to add this because we love looking behind the scenes at Wizard and this is called House Party. It was great until the cops showed up. To help welcome newbies Chris Duncan and Matthew Senreich, future Robot Chicken creator, to the Wizard Press Fold and celebrate specials editor Doug Goldstein's birthday, those three crazy kids threw a party at their rocket pad. Did we mention they were roomies? While the party was an overall swing of success, there were several moments that really stood out as something special. Number 10. Pat McCallum Matt fishing inebriated wizard staffers out of the bushes. Number nine, Andrew Carden pocketing $54 on a dare to eat half a can of easy cheese off a dry erase marker board full of dry erase marker ink. Ugh. Number eight, Mark Wolkowski doing a surprisingly good job karaokeing U2 songs. Surprisingly good that he didn't hurt himself or any houseplants. Number seven, that thing Pat found at the bottom of his beer. Ugh. Number six, drunken watch the stick, buddy. bumper. Pool. Number five, Dan Riley blow-drying his hair with a barbecue. Safety tip, don't let the gas run too long on those grills, kids. Number four, Doug's grilled mystery botulism weeders, one of which hit Dan in the head. Number three, a blushing Brian Cunningham getting offered a free shot at him. Number two, Phil Colligan projectile vomiting onto the wall at eye level, no less, and leaving a six-foot trail to the john. Number one, the cops. So yes, the wizard staff were partying it up. I mean, they were really getting wild over there, you know? Geeks Gone Wild, I guess, could have been a video series they marketed. Garab, you missed out. So speaking of Matt Senreich, they mentioned he was new to the team. He has a one of the damned profile. So this is another new thing that they were adding to the bullpen section to give you a look at these staffers and get to know them better. We've used these quite a bit in our the Wizard Files interviews as a way to basically find a, a few details to discuss. And so here is Matt Senreich, editorial assistant, says, what is it you do at Wizard? I write a bunch of news stories, edit a few columns like Card Market and profile, do some AOL stuff and talk on the phone all day with creators. I like schmoozing. I just do whatever the powers that be Joe, Brian, and Pat tell me to do. Of course, he ended up later on becoming very connected to all the Hollywood goings-on when Wizard was super big into reporting on the comic book movies, and of course, then he ended up in Hollywood himself doing Robot Chicken. Alright, next year. What's your favorite section of Wizard? If I said Wizard News, it'd be cheating, so trailer park with Toy Chest is a close second. What amazes or surprises you most about the Wizard offices the Migo house of horror in and Andrew Carden Scott Badian's Mike Searle's office sick people and we have heard about that uh, the different positions that the Migo characters were put into favorite movie of all time Star Wars and perhaps Strange Brew the best stupid movie of all time now ah, you hoser favorite book of all time HG Wells the time machine favorite TV shows The Simpsons Party of Five and the X-Files Ooh, very 90s list people would be surprised to know that you just turned 22 years old and have been working in comics for six years thanks marvel defiant broadway cbldf and wizard sorry been waiting a while to do that (laughs) interesting so he had been around somewhere in the background i love to hear about his experiences with defiant and broadway and jim shooter favorite comics right now strangers of paradise bone astro city green lantern and a bunch of other dc titles favorite comic of all time the masters of evil storyline in adventures 273 to 278 i think that was when i first thought hey it would be cool to work in comics Favorite superhero and why? Green Lantern, because he makes his imagination come to life. What are, were your nicknames? Mathead, Sunrise, Scrunch. What superpower would you want and why? To make dreams reality at will. So there you go, a little bit of a Matt Sunreich introduction. Speaking of new features, our next piece here is interesting because Wizard has introduced something they are calling The Skinny. The Skinny is a review section for Wizard, which, again, is not something that they were known for doing. You know, they put their commentary here and there when they were listing comics that were coming out, but generally speaking, they were not the ones providing the reviews, and so I'm curious to see how this all plays out, because they have created a system for ranking outside the norm. It is a top score of 6, and the 6 is the best, 5 is excellent, 4 is good, 3 is so-so, 2 is and one is crapola but of course they start out with one of my favorite comics gen 13 so let's see how this all plays out does this teen titans quality match its popularity the good Jed 13 is a fun book, plain and simple. And that's because of one thing, characterization. These kids are just darn likable. And whether it's Burnouts, Goatee, Grunge's George Clooney quaff, or the team's innate fashion sets, they're all pretty hip. What's more, they'll talk like teenagers should talk and do what teens do. Play video games, skateboard, go mall hopping, and just hang out. As for the art, J. Scott Campbell is the perfect artist for this book, and he's improving each issue. He's got a quirkiness to his style, but he's also very dynamic in his storytelling. Plus, he's the only artist we know of that made Jim Lee look bad. Lee's art in issues of Gen 13 actually looked awkward when compared to Campbell. Yes! See? This is what I was saying when I did my review of those Jim Lee issues and I was just like, no. Come on, Jim Lee, you stick with Stormwatch or Wildcats or whatever. Leave Gen 13 to J. Scott Campbell. So, Wizard agrees with me there. He says, yes, there are a lot of TNA shots, but the creators recognize this by having the characters actually make fun of that fact. Joe coloring really does stand out as well. Finally, Gen 13 has something that few comics have today, strong female leads. Fairchild, Freefall and Rainmaker are easily the strongest personalities of the team, and that's a refreshing change. The bad? While the characters themselves are enjoyable, the bulk of the stories so far have been somewhat hokey and predictable. Also, the crossovers, especially Fire from Heaven and issues number 10 and 11, completely stopped the flow of the series. While crossovers are generally bad, Fire from Heaven happened to be real bad. Jet 13 was the sole bright spot in the crossover. A major problem with the series, though, is that it isn't reader-friendly for new fans. It assumes you've already read the Gen 13 miniseries and know everything about these characters. What's needed is some more name-dropping story recaps and explanations of everyone's powers. As previously mentioned, there are way too many babe shots. do these girls believe in wearing bras? And is it always 20 degrees below zero? Yeah, we all like to see gorgeous gals, but this is a bit excessive. Also, the language can be sometimes crass and inconsistent. They'll say such things as jerk off, bitch, and riding the crimson wave. Like we really need to know the latter anyway, but instead of writing ass, they used at symbol money money in issue number seven. Seems tame compared to the others. The buzz: Gen 30 has been going strong since its inception, but can it sustain the heat with spin-off books Gen 13, Bootleg, and DV8 hitting the racks now? The skinny: Despite its problems, Gen 13 is still a fun read. Just imagine how greater to be if these problems were fixed. So I don't know that it ever changes or improves necessarily, but it definitely remains a fun book throughout and it's interesting to finally hear Wizards thoughts about it from the perspective of you know like they promote it an awful lot and Garib was very tight with Jim Lee so for them to actually do a review like this and say oh, well there's uh, some problems but it's mostly good seems fair alright now the next one here is JLA it says this T book is finally given some justice the good seeing Superman Batman Wonder Woman Green Lantern Flash Aquaman and Martian Manhunter all working together is impressive enough when was the last time the JL saw a decent roster like that? Legends number 6 in 1987? But seeing them work well together in a tense story is awesome, and that's what we get here. Surprisingly, Grant Morrison has nailed the characters dead on. The heroes' attitudes and dialogue match how they're portrayed in their current titles, which is rarely pulled off with such perfection. Morrison uses the individual members' strengths and weaknesses in just the right way. Batman fans will especially enjoy this book, that's all we'll say. The dialogue doesn't bog the reader down when it's not needed and the story moves swiftly. Quickly. The basic plot, while hokey, has everything you'd want a team of all powerhouses to face, a group of super-powered aliens, and Morrison's treatment of it is exciting enough for you not to mind it as much. Plus, it's very refreshing to read the last page of the first few issues and get a cliffhanger exciting enough that you absolutely can't wait to get the next one. The Bad The plot is just what you'd want to launch such a powerhouse book, to a fault. It quickly becomes cliched and unoriginal. You can see a little of Independence Day, Kingdom Come, Die Hard, and every generic alien invasion story you've ever read. Red in here. Plot holes run rampant in order to keep the story moving. For example, when the aliens pull shenanigans on a global scale, why are the JLA members conveniently unaffected? Why is Superman's attitude about some of the aliens' actions a little out of character? At times, the story moves too swiftly and feels rushed. There are a few fight scenes off-panel, and many others are only a page or less long. Lastly, we're forced to ask why the name of the book is JLA. What's wrong with the Justice League of America, arguably the most oppressive of any comic book title? The Buzz. When you've got DC's all-star cast seed together for the first time in who knows how long, done by a good creative team, this book will get people's attention. Bank on it. The skinny problems in this book should last only as long as the introductory story were given to launch the series. With the perfect characterizations and exciting storytelling, we're looking forward to reading this book like nothing else. The verdict gets a five. All right, and the last one we're going to read here is about Daredevil, which was being written by Carl Kiesel and drawn by Carrie Nord at this point. Finding a great superhero read isn't blind luck anymore. Uh, The good. Not many writers can give books a genuine light-hearted feel when you're dealing with superheroes, but Carl Kiesel definitely pulls this one off. The jokes fit in with the overall mood, since the drama is never overblown. We're back to basics with real people and real problems. Matt's boss is manipulating him, the foggy Nelson-Matt Murdoch friendship is strained because foggy's hurt, that Matt never told him he was Daredevil, etc. And the subplots, Karen Page taking a job as a late-night radio host, which happens to be a station owned by the Kingpin, unfold at a good pace. You're genuinely interested in what's going to happen next. Kiesel also manages to bring the justice's blind concept back into play in DD, which serves an important role in the series since Matt Murdock is a blind lawyer in the justice system. A prime example of this is the fact that Matt defends Mr. Hyde, a known killer who should rot in jail from a murder he didn't commit. Plus, Kiesel never lets you forget that Daredevil is blind with various one-liners and scenes. One other point. The art by Carry Nord is rough at times, but shows great potential by not being the style of the month. Also, his covers give a straightforward representation of the story inside, something that covers have gotten away from lately. For example, if Daredevil fights Pyro in an issue like 355, he's fighting him on the cover. The bad. There are two ways that the lighthearted feel of Daredevil goes wrong. First and foremost, the Daredevil character reads too much like a wisecracking Spider-Man, In fact, in the issue where the two meet, Daredevil number 354, their dialogue has the exact same style to it and is ultimately interchangeable. Secondly, Matt Murdock's way too casual with the fact that he's Daredevil. In one scene in 354, Matt's walking around his office wearing the costume minus the mask. Foggy then walks in to be shocked, and so is the reader. You'd think that after the last time someone found out he was DD, his world was shattered as a result of the classic born-again story, he'd be a little more careful about it. The buzz. Rumor has it this book might be farmed out of Marvel to Mark Silvestri's Top Cow studio, or even cancelled. To shake up this book in any way would be the biggest mistake Marvel's made since they took the successful Mark Waid and Ron Garney team off of Captain America. This book has suffered for so long that it's refreshing to see that it's become one of the best superhero reads out there. It's extremely reader friendly, especially for new readers. If you haven't already, pick up a copy. Now I will tell you, this is something that's been promoted in Wizard quite a bit over the last few issues, and in the next issue, 65, there is a whole program profile on it talking to Carl Kiesel about his plans so I am going to review a few issues on the next installment of Wizards Half so that is something that you can look forward to and now it's time to check out our Mort of the Month. This month's Mort is Uncle Sam. Says here, anybody else got a hanker for some Hebrew National Franks? Anyway, Uncle Sam here is a special kind of stupid. Here goes. Throughout history, when America's freedom was in peril and things looked bleak, the spirit of Uncle Sam would appear and bond with blue-blooded Americans, who were always named Sam or Samuel, creating the super-strong, nigh-invulnerable, along with his nifty, can-travel-between-dimensions if he concentrates hard enough power, Uncle Sam. Then he'd run around and write wrongs in tight-striped pants, a top hat, and a sign reading, Beat Me, taped to his... Back. Anybody else feel about as patriotic as Hitler right now? Okay, was well, there maybe a little bit too far there. But this is something that I found fascinating because they're saying that Uncle Sam is lame. I remember reading Uncle Sam was one of the many earths in crisis on infinite earths where like he was teamed up with like the Phantom Lady or something. I can't remember if that was Earth X or not. Like I just remember like it was a world that was taken over by Nazis and so they were like the rebels fighting and then of course they get wiped out. But The strange thing is, shortly after this, Alex Ross does a fully painted one-shot called Uncle Sam, where he is taking this character and basically do like a commentary on America. I bought it back in the day just because I was anything Alex Ross. I don't know how many of you did, but I just find it so fascinating that wizards crapping on him and then Alex Ross, the hottest guy, you know, in the industry at that point is putting him up on a pedestal. All right, speaking of being put up on a pedestal, as we close out here, obviously we give Rob Liefeld a hard time. Not that he doesn't deserve it, Uh, but this is something where I felt like we needed to give you the other side of the coin here, because in our discussion on the main episode, of course we were picking the juiciest and most ridiculous quotes from Rob. But the one thing that no one can deny is that he is a passionate comics fan. He loves the medium. He loves being a creator, but he loves the history of comics. And in Brian Cunningham's interview, in the opening, he does kind of explain how that comes through at the in-store signing, where he was meeting Rob. So let's uh, check this out. It says, It is almost noon when we arrive at Forbidden Planet, the signing an hour old. We enter to see Liefeld sitting behind the front counter signing various comics, hardly wearing the clothing of a superstar. A brown t-shirt, blue jeans, and navy blue sneakers with his flannel shirt hanging on the back of his chair. Appropriately on his right is right-hand man, Matt Hawkins, head of marketing for Liefeld's Extreme Studios. Rounding off Liefeld's crew is Kid Supreme artist Dan Fraga who floats around the store looking at comics. We exchange pleasantries, and at Hawkins' invitation, we go behind the counter to sit with Leifeld as he signs. The line for autographs isn't long, but steady. Steady enough for Liefeld to have time to chat with each fan and critiquing art portfolios in detail. The next fan in line approaches the counter. When are you gonna go back and do hawkin' Dove? Liefeld shifts in his fanboy gear. Whoa, you know about that? I'm going to DC Comics tomorrow to see if I could do something with Hawk and Dove. I'd like to do a two-part Superman Hawk and Dove story. I'd try to convince them to do something. As the signing line lulls, Liefeld passes time by sketching his diehard character on a plain sheet of white paper. Time to squeeze in some questions. It's still early in the day. I decide to keep the topics light. I start with the New Mutants, jumping on something Liefeld told a fan earlier. Is he interested in returning to the book? It's just an idea I had. He admits. Obviously, I've been thinking about this Heroes Reborn thing for a long time. There's this whole new world that Jim Lee and I are architects of, and I was just thinking the other day the title New Mutants would be appropriate for an X-Men book in Heroes Reborn because they would be the first mutants in that world. I don't think I'll have much of a problem twisting people's arms into a book called New Mutants. The topic turns to the Avengers. Liefeld's enthusiasm is on the rise. It's got a 60s vibe to it, like a 90s execution, says Liefeld. Captain America is like a big conspiracy book and it's very serious. The Avengers is just face lights up, arms get all animated and deepens his voice. Avengers assemble! Let's go kick ass! That's the book that I'm most anxious to put out. I tell Liefeld that I've always been an Avengers guy. Oh, don't even get me started Liefeld says, his face beaming with a big smile. That was the best book when I was a kid. Do you remember the issue where Ant-Man took them all on? That was the best issue. I still remember just freaking out over that one. So again, there is Rob, the comic book fan, the guy who loves the industry that he is working in. So that did come through even though, uh, yeah, we talked more about his... Lack of self-awareness. Just wanted to make sure that we were kind of giving a fair presentation of what Wizard was presenting at this time. But hey, you know, we love our comics over here too, and we love that you tune in to these half episodes. Thank you so much for joining me. Just want to make sure you're staying tuned to our YouTube channel, because again, we are not doubling up content. It is all fresh and new for you over there, whether it's a haul video, whether it's the Halloween costume contest video, whether it is the upcoming superhero fantasy draft video, among other things that we have in the Hopper, including a Pat McCallum tribute where we have a select group of Marvel editorial staff that will be sharing their recollections of Pat and giving us a behind-the-scenes look at everything he meant to the magazine and to them as friends. So just wanted to give you a heads-up on that. It'll be coming your way in November. Of course, if you have a chance to you know, leave a nice review, five stars, please, on Apple Podcasts or just spread the word on your social media, of course you can find us at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at wizards underscore comics on instagram and we will be back again real soon so in the meantime keep your books bagged and boarded